KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. Honor Blackman may have had the best opening line for an actress ever when she appeared like a vision to James Bond in Goldfinger. We'll be landing in 20 minutes. Do you want to play it easy or the hard way? Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Blackman was also the kick-ass Kathy Gale to Patrick McNee's John Steed on the Avengers TV series. That was before Diana Rigg entered as Mrs. Peel. Blackman died earlier this year, at the age of 94. This was also the month that Bond 25, No Time to Die, was supposed to open. But the coronavirus pandemic has forced cinemas to close, and Bond, as with many other big franchise titles, has decided to postpone its opening until the fall in the hope that this pandemic will have subsided enough to allow theaters to reopen. But since Bond was on my mind, and Blackman died just three days before No Time to Die had been scheduled to open, I felt like spy movies were an appropriate topic. I also wanted to do a podcast about escapist spy films as a follow-up to my earlier podcast about the escapism offered by screwball comedies. With people sheltering at home, binge viewing has become a regular pastime, and everybody needs a list of something to watch. To help me pay tribute to the late honor Blackman, and also to guide us through the most ridiculous and just plain fun spy movies, is James Patrick, whose obsession with James Bond in particular has led him to create the Bond Age podcast and the James Bond social media project. But for today, I'm only letting him talk about Bond during our tribute to Honor Blackman, because after that, It's going to be about spy films that are a little more off the beaten path and with tongues sometimes placed more firmly or ridiculously in cheek. I need to take the first of two quick breaks, and then I'll be back with James Patrick to talk about Honor Blackman and escaping the doldrums and anxieties of quarantine life with some diverting spy movies. Well, how about it, handsome? Don't you think it's time we got to know each other socially? Well, the new Miss Galore. Where do you hide your gold knuckles in this outfit? Oh, I uh, never carry weapons after business hours. Yeah? So you're off duty? I'm completely defenseless. So am I. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. James, I met you at the TCM Film Festival, and that's kind of the common thread between all the people I'm talking to for this uh, Escapist Fair podcasts. And um, you specialize in sports. Spy films. So give us a little background on yourself in terms of what led you to kind of go in this particular direction. I kind of backed into it, actually. Kind of came about as, a, as an accident. I uh, was uh, acquaintances with a guy who ran a literary fiction blog uh, about the time that Skyfall came out in 2012. 
and he said, why don't you, you know, write a blog about James Bond for the literary website he wanted to expand into different types of writing. And I said, hey, sure, why not? And it's like, well, what if we did one essay per week per James Bond movie ending with a new piece of writing about Skyfall? I was like, oh, that sounds great. And then I went back to him and said, but what if we did a live tweet of every James Bond movie and I wrote about that using the conversation from the live tweet to fuel the text. And sure, why not? So that's how my live tweet project bondage, hashtag B-O-N-D underscore A-G-E underscore started back in 2012. And it was supposed to be a one time around thing and it's still going on uh, almost eight years later now. And from there, it became all sorts of spy things. And I started really getting into the, the Bond extended universe, all the Euro spy trash that came out in the wake of Bond's popularity. Before we get to your list of escapist spy films for people to watch while in quarantine, let's talk a little bit about Honor Blackman. She just passed away. She was pussy galore in Goldfinger and probably had the most memorable on-screen introduction of any character. What is it about her and that role that made it so memorable, do you think? I think because she was the first really uh, strong female character in the Bond universe, they had their small roles uh, in Dr. No and For Much With Love. And um, Honor Blackman came out and she was a force in Goldfinger. She was something that we hadn't seen a lot of in, in mainstream cinema at the time. And the, the, the role was written in the novel as a not so veiled lesbian, they couldn't clearly put that into a James Bond movie. There, there's a less, large segment of the population that wasn't ready to accept that kind of sexuality on screen, but they, they didn't go to too many lengths to, to cloud that fact either. Uh, but she became kind of reflective of the feminist movement that had just started to get going in that part of the 60s. So, she, I mean, she was her own woman. She wasn't she was billed as sort of a kept woman by Goldfinger, but she clearly had her own mind. And though she was you know, wooed by James Bond and supposedly broke of her homosexuality uh, because of his Cro-Magnon charm, she was actually the one that saved the day. It wasn't actually James Bond and Goldfinger that that came through to with, with the eventual plot to overthrow the Goldfinger Fort Knox scheme. Uh, so she brought a new quality to the Bond girl that, that just wasn't there. I'll admit my age here. I was five years old when this film came out. And to me, she was like this amazing figure because in the 60s, we had like Doris Day representing kind of the the quote unquote liberated woman, you know, but she was always so annoying and kind of prissy and I don't know. And to see Honor Blackman, who like, she was a pilot, she ran her own business, she could kick Bond's ass, she had, you know, she could trade quips with anybody. It was really inspiring to a five-year-old girl, <laughs> I have to say. And it's a, the thing that, that's hard for me now is like so many people will tell me like, oh, those Bond films are misogynistic and they're chauvinistic and you shouldn't watch them. And, you know, to me, that film really has a special place in my heart. Yeah, I have a, I have a tough time agreeing with those sentiments. I mean, it's clearly there. 
but they're only looking at one side of it. There are characters like Pussy Galore that are, that are complicated figures, but in context, this was a huge step for mainstream cinema. She was a strong, independent woman who had sexual desires and interests outside that domestic stability. And that, w- that wasn't common. So to say that these, even these early James Bond movies were, were, were misogynistic, I think is, is a gross oversimplification of what was actually going on. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there's clearly moments you know, you can, you know, that causes a few eye rolls and it's like, oh, James Bond. Like, I mean, I think they're all on You Only Live Twice, but th- there's some actually quite strong female characters that came out, even those early Bond movies and they get more progressive as the series goes on. And there's always going to be a a few of those sequences where the whole movie revolves around uh, getting the Bond girl in her bikini for the last third of the movie. Like that's so woven into the fabric of these movies, but let's not focus on that without also calling attention to the Honor Blackmans and the Vesper Lins of the universe. And Honor Blackman was also in the Avengers TV series before the probably better known Diana Rigg, Mrs. Peel character. And those I was very happy to find are readily available on Amazon. But that show was great too, even though, you know, it's a little clunky now because it was very early, you know, television. But she was great in those as well. Yeah, the, the first the first few seasons of the Avengers do feel a little clunky, like you said. They the when they get to Diana Rigg, it's a far more polished formula. I think it's easy to forget that there was a whole season of the Avengers before Honor Blackman shows up. She will be dearly missed, and at least her image will live on forever in film, so we'll be able to pass those films on to another generation. And but, sort of a fashion icon, too, because, yeah. uh, you know, tight black leather has become very <laughs> iconic. And that was another happy accident. They, uh, there was a problem with, uh, like, she didn't want to keep pulling a gun out of her purse. So they made her more of a hand-to-hand combat specialist. And she split her pants doing, doing uh, some of the stunts. And like, well, this isn't working. We can't have our leading lady splitting her pants every time she does a toss. So um, they brought in a, a fashion designer by the name of Michael Whitaker, who crafted the, the leather catsuit that we've all come to love. With the planet Mars now in opposition and Neptune in the ascendant, this is your chance to break out of the rut you live in. Throw care to the winds, come out of your shell. Here at last is your great opportunity to live dangerously. That was Honor Blackman as Kathy Gale in the British TV series The Avengers. I need to take one last break, and then I'll be back with the rest of my interview with James Patrick. We'll talk about some of the less well-known spy films that might provide the perfect escape during quarantine. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. So any of the Avenger episodes with Honor Blackman or Goldfinger would do quite well as quarantine viewing. But let's get to some films that you think really provide a little more escapism, maybe a little less reality. We're going to start with kind of the maybe the lesser known ones or the harder to find ones. Kiss the girls and make them die. The one you want to start with is 
Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die. And you said this one's a little tough to track down sometimes. Yeah, this this one isn't all that readily available. And it's kind of strange because it's not like it didn't have some big names behind it. It was produced by uh, Dina De Laurentiis. It's an Italian-American co-production with the Cinematographica and Columbia Pictures. So Columbia is involved in this and it's still impossible to find in true physical media form. Uh, there are some knockoff uh, bootlegs out there you can find and it pops up on YouTube and I believe right now you can find it in daily motion. Uh, so it's out there if you do a quick video search for the video. So this one stands out from the dozens of knockoffs that came out right after Bond hit sort of an early peak. Uh, 1966, there was this huge glut of ripoffs, knockoffs, imitations. Uh, most of them were filmed in Europe with very small budgets. This one, because Columbia is involved, has a bit more of a budget and it's easy to see where the money went. It looks good. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell because of the state that it's in online. Um, but you can see there's definite production value here where there wasn't in a lot of the other ones. Um, so this one uh, was directed by Henry Levin, who kind of got involved in this, this spy, spy craze. He'll pop up again in a minute. Um, this one stars Michael Connors as CIA agent 409. They all have numbers. It, it's, it's essential to the ripoff that there's some ridiculous number association. And this one's actually a CIA agent 409 and another MI6 agent played by Dorothy Provine. Another requirement for this is that there's, there's some sort of eccentric fashion sense. And Dorothy Provine has certainly satisfies that requirement because every scene she's in a new hat or gown to, to play this role of an upper class twit because her cover. There have been other plots to take over the world, but this one is outrageous. There isn't a lot of originality with this movie. It, it sort of follows the standard James Bond boilerplate. You've got a maniacal Brazilian industrialist that wants to sterilize the human race from his satellite and personally repopulate the planet with all the beautiful women he's kidnapped. Huh. I once thought you were clever, but no. You were stupid enough to try to escape from me. Put her in the rocket. It's not that it's doing anything new, but it does everything really well. The villain reminds me kind of a, of a Adolfo Celli in Thunderball. He's got, he's got a great house, a great lair, and you know, a rocket pad you know, attached so he can shoot his satellite up in the air. His impotency is the reason he's taking this out in the rest of the world. It's another one that the the tongue is firmly planted in its cheek, and it really does attempt to rival Bond in the the globe hopping and gadgets. Uh, it opens in a, a jungle before bouncing over to Rio de Janeiro for a scene around Christ the Redeemer. Kiss the girls and make them die. A kiss kill carnival in Rio. Kiss the girls and make them die. 
Now, there are some spy films that really go a bit over the top in terms of putting that tongue in cheek and not taking the genre terribly seriously. And those are especially fun to watch. And you have one that I have not seen, which is Lucky El Entrebido, or however you uh, <laughs> or, or pronounce Or Lucky that. the Inscrutable, if you prefer. Uh, <laughs> th this one is a Jesus Franco production. So you, you kind of know what you're going to get along with that, and then you're pleasantly surprised when it's not. You know, he, he has a certain modus operandi. Uh, he, he, he likes just a kind of production that, that uh, is a little bit dirtier, uh, a little bit sleazier, but this one is actually not at all like that. He's the, he did a number of Eurospy movies, the Kiss Me Monster, uh, Sadist, Erotica, Girl from Rio, which all pretty much overindulge in the, uh, the female form. He, he, he's, he was a big fan. Um, so this one is kind of just a straight spoof. I'm not going to call it like a, like a laughs a minute sort of airplane situation, but that's what it's going for. It's gag, 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 gag. And while they're not going to all be winners and, and certainly not laugh out loud, they're consistently effective in maintaining the character of Lucky, played by Ray Danton, who is a master of disguise and expert in every situation. He's kind of Matt Helm, Derek Flint, and it really reminds you of Top Secret, which will naturally get into in a minute. So the villain in this movie is a, is a guy named Gold Glasses. It's really not much of a stretch to figure out where that came from. Uh, he's a counterfeiter who takes overwhelming pride in his fake money. And the, our hero is employed by a society of financiers to sniff out the devious villain to protect their own interests. There's a, a particularly uh, effective gag. Lucky goes to um, a market of spies and the vendors are calling out all the sensitive material they have for sale, like Russian secrets or filthy French microfilm. <laughs> all right. Filthy French microfilm sounds almost like a character name in Top Secret. So <laughs> <laughs> that might be a good transition to it. Very well. This is Chevalier. Montage. Détente. Avant-garde and déjà vu. Have we not met before, monsieur? I don't think so. Top Secret comes decades after the real spy boom and the, the you know, first appearance of Bond and all this. But it proves that that spy formula is still something that is very firmly rooted in, in our pop culture DNA and that they can still poke fun at it. And these are the guys who did give us Airplane and Police Squad and Naked Gun. And it's Val Kilmer as a spy. And this is absolutely ridiculous and absurd and i think this is a great escapist fair <laughs> to watch it is i showed this to my kids the other day because i was re-watching it for this and they i wasn't sure how much they were going to get because I, I ne i'm never quite sure how far the physical comedy will carry when it's so many so filled with referential material but they they thought it was hilarious and I don't, I'm not even sure what they were getting out of it. Like some of the jokes you really have to explain, like skeet surfing, 
like when because they show that that's the video that's his big his big song he plays a sort of an elvis beach party pop star and yet it's still set in what is what would be contemporary times so it, it's this weird sort of mashup of styles and times and genres i'm not even sure that abrams and, and zucker knew what they wanted to do with this movie there's so much jammed into it i mean it's like you said it's a parody of spy movies but it's also a parody of the elvis musicals and the beach party movies and the world war ii resistance films um, it's actually riffs specific scenes from uh, the 1944 movie the conspirators yeah they really crammed everything in and i i think what's fun about them is that the reason why kids can like them and adults is it works on so many levels. There's a lot of verbal humor. There's a lot of physical humor. There's a lot of visual humor. And if you're laughing at something that's visually funny, you may not get the referential joke to that 1940s film, but you still will get some sort of gag out of it that will make you laugh. And they just do pile one on top of the other in like layers. And even though this isn't as consistently funny as Airplane, I go back to Top Secret more, I think, just because uh, it's it's more of a, a fun movie in the way that it just kind of doesn't care. Like Airplane is very focused. It's very focused on its gag. And Top Secret just, like I said, it just throws everything into the mix. Any, anything goes. And Part of that is is Val Kilmer's performance. He does the singing and, of course, the dancing. And it's it's one of those movies that's like, where has this Val Kilmer gone? I want more of all this. Nick, I want to explain. What's there to explain? But I just want Look, to say that... I'm not the first guy who fell in love with a girl he met in a restaurant who then turned out to be the daughter of a kidnapped scientist, only to lose her to a childhood lover who she'd last seen on a deserted island and who turned out 15 years later to be the leader of the French underground. I know it. It all sounds like some bad movie. A French kind of version of this spoof uh, was OSS 117 Cairo, Nest of Spies, because you have to have good titles on these two. Absolutely. <laughs> OSS 117, pour vous servir. This one was really delightful, and and also it had these kind of visual gags and references to other movies but it was utterly charming too it is and and this this goes to how perfectly michael hasnavicious was able to capture the feel of those early bond movies he really goes to great lengths to recreate the look and the sound of them i mean he uses rear projection for all the traveling sequences in cars he's using the same color palette he really does recreate this world. And Jean Dujardin is, I, he's channeling early Sean Connery, like just his <laughs> delivery. You, you can, it's clear that he spent a lot of time studying the mannerisms from those Bond movies because he's recreated them perfectly here. And this, this is another straight up spoof, but there's so much more going on in terms of filmmaking craft and, and, and what Hasnavicious was able to do. This is his first movie, and he does sort of the same things he does here as what he did for the artist by this with this loving tribute to a style of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's so many great lines in this movie and scenes, and I'll you you can never unsee the chicken fight where he's using chickens as projectiles. You know, he's he's supposed to be the 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 character that Jean Dujardin is playing is based on 
um, the character from the OSS 117 novel series by Jean Bruce. So, uh, and those films, those were made into films in the 60s that were far more uh, straight up spy movie. They weren't, they, they weren't even towards the Bond mold. They were more serious. And this goes completely in the direction, making it full spoof. You know, they're, they're playing on the, we're talking about the chauvinism and, and the, the potential moments of racism involved in some of those early Bond movies. So they really play that up in the character. Um, just an example, he, the Baroness Bejo character introduces herself. She says, my name is Larmina El Akmar Batouche. And he responds, what a complicated name. Mine's Hubert Bonsoir de la Bath. You know, just little, there's little asides constantly throughout the movie that remind you of the, of the source material. It, it, it was a movie that I saw and I didn't really know what to expect. It was before the artist and I didn't know who any of these people were. Uh, and it really won me over. It's, it's one of my favorite spy spoof movies. And I think it works as uh, for anyone who doesn't really, isn't even that familiar with the story. It's just got a lot of great humor in it that, that comes naturally from the story. And I remember there, I think there was one scene where he wakes up in bed and he looks, his hair's messy and he's like just... I forget if he just flips his hand or something, but it like, and then his hair's perfect and he's got the mm -hmm. smile. And I think they even did, didn't they do like a little glisten on his teeth when he smiled too? Probably, yeah. <laughs> All right, I think my favorite title, the actual title itself, not necessarily the film, but my favorite title of the films on your list today is Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. Woo! is Vincent Price, I mean Dr. Goldfoot, with plans to possess most of the money in the world. Frankie Avalon knows it. Dwayne Hickman finds out about it. Susan Hart is an innocent, innocent tool of the plan. Hello, darling. This is Vincent Price as Dr. Goldfoot and a bunch of the AIP Beach Party alumni. What a combination. <laughs> right. This is more of a pop culture parody, so it's, it's pretty broad. You're going to get some of the, the spy movie riffs, but it's also really using its beach party source as, as a source of material as well. Dr. Goldfoot is a mad scientist with a C-grade kind of Igor assistant uh, that builds a gang of female robots who are dispatched to seduce and rob rich old men. And it's up to Frankie Avalon and Dobie Gillis to thwart the maniacal doctor. <laughs> These lush bikini babes are built, uh, I mean made, uh, produced to perform. And they have the knack of doing what they're built to do. She walks. She talks. Come here, tiger. She makes love. Did you miss me, precious? Sex has never been funnier. She isn't human. But she is gorgeous. It was originally, in, in conception, a musical. If you can also throw that in there with the idea that Vincent Price had musical numbers involved. And I, I read one of the actresses, Susan Hart, uh, says that footage existed of Vincent Price singing a, a Bikini Machine song, but said that producer Sam Arkoff thought 
price looked quote unquote too fay. Oh, the things that we have lost, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, this uh, Dr. Gold from the Bikini Machine did also go on to inspire Austin Powers' Fembots. Mr. Armstrong, you're married to a robot. <laughs> A couple of films we have coming up here have their tongue placed firmly in cheek, but are a little more serious, not quite as goofy. And one of them is a, a character that's well known, Matt Helm, and the film is Murderer's Row. And, and what about this particular spy film do you feel is uh, worth highlighting? It's kind of Dean Martin. Hi there, sport fans. Time to call them as we see them. I'm here to tell you all about our new Matt Helm adventure. Murderer's Row, it's a grabber, and we do our best. Oh, of course, there's that wonderful girl with the two first names, Anne Margaret, one for each of her dancing feet. And in the film, Matt Helm runs up against the mean, vicious killer played by Carl Malden. Oh, I must tell you, there was a great, exciting chase at the start of this picture, but I couldn't catch her. Her name is Camila Spar, and now I would like to show you some, uh, well, some of the great action scenes from Murderer's Row. That's one of them. Murderer's Row in Technicolor. The Matt Helm films have an interesting backstory, and I'll try to get through this pretty quickly without going, going too deep into the Bond history, but Cubby Broccoli, who produced the Bond films with Harry Saltzman, was previously partners with Irving Allen at a company called Warwick Films. And the two actually fell out over acquiring James Bond. Irving Allen didn't want to do it. And he at one point told Fleming that his movies weren't good enough for TV. Wow. <laughs> that his novels weren't good enough for TV. Yeah, to his face in the meeting. So this really pissed Cubby off who was desperately trying to acquire the Bond rights. They split, he joined with Harry Saltzman and obviously they, they did okay for themselves with the Bond movies. So Irving Allen, having watched all this Bond stuff happen for four or five years on the side, sat there stewing and decided to pretty much just go out and pick up the first spy property he could think he could find. And he was in an airport and picked up one of the Donald Hamilton, Matt Helm books and called in within 24 hours and said, we wanna make movies out of this. By the time they got around to actually making the movie, no one believed they could actually do a serious spy movie. And they already had all the production involved. They had the script ready, but they had no star. The, the books are actually about a middle-aged World War II assassin who is grizzled and probably a little suicidal. So take that to Dean Martin. <laughs> so they had the guy that, that did... Uh, Dean Martin shows scripts, come on and rewrite it with his Rat Pack character in mind and transition these serious scripts over to this Dean Martin world where you then get Matt Helm. And this leads us to what I think is my favorite film on this list, and it's because I have a very personal connection to it, which is Our Man Flint with James Coburn. And again, you know, I was little in the 60s and Bond was something that I latched onto and fell in love with those films. And Our Man Flint was just a delightful counterpart. The world is in turmoil. 
frenzied diplomats turn to their computers and come up with the one individual on Earth who can snatch victory from defeat. Flint! Flint! Here he is, the total man. Our man, Flint. James Coburn. Don't let that sleepy look fool you girls. Our man Flint can handle everything. Lives it up like mad. Private barber, personal valet. He fences for breakfast, karate's for lunch, dances for dinner, kisses anytime, visits the most sensational places, and knows just the right thing to do for unexpected company like boss Lee J. Cobb. Lower your hand slowly and smile. What? If he senses hostility towards me, he'll rip you apart now. And when our man Flint discovers a spy like gorgeous Gila Golan close to home, his superb training and instant reflexes take over. You won't believe me. <laughs> you try me. What makes it so perfect is that James Coburn plays this entirely straight. Now repeat after me. I am not a pleasure unit. I am not a pleasure unit. He is the genius of all things. He knows how to do everything. And while they're doing this, the, the movie around him becomes increasingly more absurd. What I, what I love about how James Coburn inhabits this world is that he's clearly above it all. It's all silly and he's the only source of wisdom. So the movie actually takes a lot of, I wanna call them shots, but there's, there's certainly direct nods toward James Bond. So some of the things like he meets famous agent 0008 in France. There he asks him if, if Spectre is involved and 0008 says it's bigger than Spectre. <laughs> and that actor I read was specifically chosen because he resembled Sean Connery. Earlier on in the movie, Flint uh, dismisses the offering of a Walther PPK Bond's weapon of choice and an attache case with a whole bunch of gadgets in favor of his cigarette lighter with 80-something different functions. This contains 65 weapons, you know. This has 82 different functions. 83 if you wish to light a cigar. And he also had that great watch where he was, where mm -hmm. he was able to, like, go to sleep in almost a death-like state and then this little thing would come out and tap his pulse to kind of bring him back to life. <laughs> yeah, just a little arm that comes out of the watch and taps him. <laughs> The, the faking the death comes up in, in other Bond movies too. He faked, John, James Bond faked his death and he only lived twice. So I, I think that's definitely a, a nod to that. And uh, even later in the movie, uh, Gila Galan's character is seen reading one of the 0008 novels and the cover clearly resembles the old Signet Bond paperbacks. James Coburn is an actor who I, I don't think he's as as well appreciated as he should be because he was great. And he was also in like The Magnificent Seven was another one and High Wind in Jamaica. I remember him also. I wish his films got played a little more in terms of kind of as a tribute to him. Uh, he's he's in, uh, I mean, there's just a lot of James Coburn material out there. And you're right, none of it, there's... Very few of it is actually celebrated because of James Coburn, and I think that's just a tragic tragedy. Because you, the great thing about a James Coburn movie is that it features James Coburn. <laughs> and you can always pick up any of them at any given time and, and find something to enjoy out of that performance. Because he, he was 
he was a consistently entertaining personality. Yes. And of course, there's also the the element that Die Hard borrowed the name of the villain from our man Flint and Hans Gruber. <laughs> I had forgotten that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Well, my wife walked in while I was watching this one, and she's like, did they just say Hans Gruber? I'm like, they did just say Hans Gruber. Now, we're, we're coming up to your top two here, or at least the, the two we're going to finish with. And the, and the thing about these top two is that it's kind of a combination uh, you have this feeling when you feel like it's a movie that you've sort of discovered. I mean, clearly people have seen it before, and I wasn't even alive when any of these movies came out. <laughs> but I was. <laughs> I don't know that it helps or hinders you. <laughs> people just don't talk about them, and I feel like there's these are the movies that prove that there's more to be discovered. You can always find something else that that really speaks to you as as a piece of cinema. Well, I know one of them, and I don't know the other, so I'm really excited to hear you talk about that. But first up, let's talk about Deadlier Than the Male. The gentle sex. The weaker sex. So charming. So pretty. So frail. Gentlemen, beware. They're deadlier than the male. Poor Mr. Wingard. Yeah, this one is the extension of the Bulldog Drummond character. So that was another series of novels written by H.C. McNeil, um, which was turned into uh, film as early as 1920. He was just kind of one of those old-fashioned hardball detectives. Ronald Coleman portrayed him uh, probably most famously in, in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. But um, in this iteration, he's uh, an insurance investigator. Now that might seem a little bit strange considering that he's supposed to be a James Bond stand in this movie, but he's uh, played by the rather prosaic Richard Johnson. And this actually works to the film's advantage because he looks just like any other guy, but he's really got kind of a nasty streak in him when he gets provoked. In this way, they get to play with two personalities. You get to play with the personality that's just a guy, just like a -a workaday insurance investigator of no consequence, who then happens to be this really dangerous sort of private investigator slash spy. And the great thing about Deadlier Than the Male is that it also has a, has a pretty high production value. And there's, there's a, a base level of absurdity going on the whole time because there's also sort of this beach party vibe that sneaks in at, at a couple of times. But the, the, the best thing about it is that the villains, the primary villains are played by uh, Elkie Summer and Silva Cosina. And I think they're probably the best pair of assassins in cinema history. I, and I'm willing, I'm willing to do the research to back that up. Mr. Bridgenorth? Could have been very nice, Mr. Bridgenorth. But now you're paralyzed. You can see and you can hear and you can feel. But you can't move and you can't talk. Oh, poor Mr. Bridgenorth. You see, it is a nasty old drug she carries in her ring. It only lasts just a few minutes and doesn't leave any traces at all. Isn't that clever? The police will think you've committed suicide. Penelope, take his feet. Yeah, and the poster for this has, you know, bikini-clad women all over it. So. With harpoons. <laughs> you, you can't beat a poster that sells its greatest assets holding harpoons. This movie actually got uh, an X uh, by the British Film Board because of uh, the female assassins, a couple scenes of graphic torture, and shockingly rampant promiscuity. No. Yes. <laughs> no. Yes. There, so there, there's a lighter comic touch going on throughout this this whole movie. 
the villain, the, the main villain who's behind the assassination, the assassins are, is uh, played by the ever reliable Nigel Green, who plays a wonderful uh, eccentric British stiff in a clean suit, uh, has his own island, uh, a life-size chess set and army of deadly women at his disposal. Beauty and the Beast, huh? You've met Grace, of course. She's one of our new girls. There are certain things they have to learn before I send them out to work. Chang there teaches them self-defense. In aping the James Bond style, a lot of these movies went out of their way to create these elaborate James Bond-esque opening themes. And like we had um, the Supremes doing the, the Goldfoot theme. Here we have the Walker Brothers and doing the Deadly Than the Male song. And uh, it, it clearly apes the, the John Barry style. It's a wonderful song. She whispers, oh, such pretty lies. Don't believe her. For when you look into her eyes, love just We'll round this out with a film I have never heard of, so I'm very excited to go and seek this out. Special Mission Lady Chaplin. New York, London, Paris. Three sprawling capital cities of the free world, and each one concealing an enterprise controlled by Lady Chaplin. Who is Lady Chaplin? A high fashion dress designer? A peace-loving nun? a military driver attached to NATO, an eminent scientist. This is what CIA man Dick Malloy is assigned to find out. This one's a bit of an obscurity. I, I'm not even sure when I first learned about it. It probably came from the Eurospy Guide by Matt Blake and David Deal, which kind of became my Bible throughout this whole journey. So this one is directed by Alberto De Martino, who specialized in specific kinds of Hollywood knockoffs. Uh, he worked for Fellini, and um, it was Fellini that encouraged him to go out and direct his own stuff. He did all sorts of westerns, uh, horror movies, spy and fantasy films. Um, his other spy output includes the uh, 1967 movie, OK Connery. And then this movie, Special Mission Lady Chaplin. Uh, it starred Ken Clark. Now, Ken Clark might be best remembered to American audiences because Mystery Science Theater has lovingly riffed giant leeches. <laughs> and oh 12th to the moon 12th to the moon uh whenever he came on screen they come up with another name for his big lug of a man so like bronc drywall and stump huge large were names that they bestowed upon ken clark uh he is just a big meathead he plays a character named dick malloy american agent 077 uh there were three spy movies for agent 077 you had um, Mission Bloody Mary is the first, followed up by Fury on the Bosphorus. And then there's Special Mission Lady Chaplin. None of them have anything to do with the other one. The only, cons the only constant is Ken Clark. And his favorite activity is punching people. <laughs> that seems to be his special skill. What do you think might make this particularly good fare for escapism? <laughs> this goes into the, the realm of movies 
that you watch despite their inefficiencies. It's not what you would call all that competent, but what it does, it does really well. So it's another one of those, the plot really doesn't matter whatsoever. I mean, I'll tell you, but it's not, you're not gonna, I'm gonna talk and you're gonna tune it out as soon as I do. So it's about 16 stolen nuclear warheads from a sunken American nuclear submarine and a multi-millionaire businessman who doesn't seem to be telling the truth about what he knows about the missiles. So they, they send Agent 077 to figure out what's going on. And then there's somehow he employs another female assassin by the name of Arabella Chaplin, who's played by Daniela Bianchi, who, and he's, she's um, Tatiana Romanova from Russia with Love. And she is some sort of fashion maven. So again, we have all these elaborate costume changes and wardrobes, and she looks great in all sorts of weird hats. So people have had to come up with different ways of creating kind of a film community while in quarantine and self-isolation. So, you know, there are Netflix watch parties, but, you know, people are also doing things like my friends and I, where we do a, a Zoom meeting and all watch the same film. And you can kind of create your own Mystery Science Theater 3000. And this film would seem like a really good piece of material for that kind of a viewing opportunity. It is. It really, it really works well. You can enjoy it completely on its own. And I, I recommend watching it on its own. And I recommend giving it the old Mystery Science Theater riff treatment. We did it as a live tweet some years ago and it works really well. But at the same time, there's so there's so many elements in this movie that you can appreciate. Um, like I said, the costume changes and the, the score by Bruno Nicolai is wonderful. Um, that's what a lot of these movies had going on, even if they were lackluster productions, even if they didn't make sense. There were certain elements that remained consistent. The, the, especially the Italian productions had people like Bruno Nicolai composing for them. And there are these super jazzy scores and, and no matter what craziness is going on screen, you just kind of sit back and go, you know what, that's great. I can just sit back and listen to the score. And, and this one happens to have some of those, had, had that bond tie with Danielle Bianchi, who's gorgeous. And watching her go through all these elaborate costume changes, that's something. And then there's always the face value absurdity of Ken Clark trying to act. <laughs> it's, it's very one note. There's, there's no emotional range. And when I say he's best at punching people, that is that is really the only time he looks comfortable is when he's taking or receiving a punch. <laughs> when I originally tried to conceive like how I was gonna spin this, is like, why do I love watching these Bond knockoff movies? And it came down to there's I decided there were three levels of the espionage film. You have the, the Jean Le Carré realism, you know, Smiley's world. Everything is very dire, very serious, and we're going to talk in hushed tones throughout the movie so nobody overhears our conversation. And then there's James Bond, which is, you know, fairly removed from reality, but they still need to convey a sense of tension about whether James Bond's actually going to save the world. We know he is, but we need that tension still. With these movies that came out as a response to James Bond, they're more concerned about looking and sounding like they belong. 
they're, they're riffing on the established Bond tropes and winking at the audience most of the time. There's never actually a concern that the world is going to end. We don't, we don't see the villains as capable of destroying the world, nor do we really see the, the heroes as you know, being able to save it. And somewhere in that middle ground is this nice, consistent, everything's going to be okay vibe. <laughs> well, these sound great for uh, quarantining. And if people are interested in following you, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at 007 Hertz Rumble. We have live tweets uh, every Wednesday at nine o'clock for the James Bond Social Media Project. You can follow us at the hashtag Bondage, as I mentioned earlier. I think that's, that's pretty easy to find me. I'm out and about. All right, well, take care and uh, stay healthy. Thank you, you too. That was James Patrick, host of the Bondage podcast. Coming up on Cinema Junkie, I'll have a pandemic viewing list prepared by neuroscientist Eric Leonardis. And I'll talk with Will McKinley about streaming choices, including some for families, to help us get through sheltering at home. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. PBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.